Well, we all have those, Evan. We're all only as big as the smallest thing it takes to divert us from where we're supposed to be. So whether it's me being blind or you dealing with learning disabilities or someone else listening to us right now who's going through divorce, disability, debt, any challenge in their life, we're all only as big as the smallest thing it takes to divert us from where we're supposed to be. So, you know, we don't always have choices in what happens to us. I hate to be the one to tell you and your audience that uh, life isn't fair. We don't always get what we want or need or earn or deserve, but we will always get what we expect. Hi, my name is Evan Herman, and I'm documenting my journey on becoming the best version of myself while learning how to be an entrepreneur and developing the successful habits that are necessary to get and keep me there. If you want to come alongside of me and make this journey together, we'll be listening and learning from some of the world's greatest mentors in the areas that matter most, faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, and fun. So join me on the Whole Person Podcast. I just wanted you guys to know that I love being the host of the Whole Person Podcast. That being said, I wanted you to know where the money comes from for the show. The truth is, we actually don't make money on the podcast just yet. And so as of right now, the way that the podcast gets funded is because through my real estate career, I pay to produce and create the Whole Person Podcast. Now, eventually, I would like the show to be self-sustaining. But until then, I am okay with producing the financial revenue in order for the show to work because, well, this is my baby. So that being said... If you know of anyone that is looking to buy or sell a home within the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, I'd be more than happy to talk with them and see how I can help them do that. And if by chance you live outside the area and you or someone that you know is looking to buy or sell a home, I would love to even talk with them. And the reason why is because I can help connect them with the right real estate agent and even those agents pay referral fees. And by doing these things, you will actually help me to pay for the production of the Whole Person Podcast. And I just want to say thank you for that, and I hope you guys enjoy the show. So today we have a very awesome, awesome guest. His name is Jim Stovall. He's an international speaker, best-selling author of more than 30 books. He has shared the stage with the likes of Zig Ziglar, General Colin Powell, Christopher Reeves, and even Tony Robbins. One of the most amazing things I believe about Jim is that while he is legally blind, he has more sight and vision in his life than what most people hope of dreaming of having. Jim, welcome to the show. It is great to be with you. Thank you. Well, and you you know, we have the same alma mater, so that's pretty cool at Oral Roberts University. Yeah, I'm about a few years apart. I graduated in 81, so back, back about the time the earth was cooling, I graduated from ORU, and uh, I think you're a bit more recent than that. That's right. Yeah, I I graduated in 2010, and I don't think I was even alive when you graduated college then, because I think I, you said 81, right? 81. Yep, I was I was seven years in the making at that point. Well, and I have, I have loved my experience at ORU, and we've stayed involved. I I started a scholarship fund there in 1988, about the year you were born, and we have to date sent uh, 500 kids to school with our scholarship fund, and then. Uh, I did the Stovall Administrative Center there on campus, and then just this year started uh, a project I'm really excited about. Uh, we donated $1.5 million to start the Stovall Center for Entrepreneurship to teach kids all around the world how to uh, start and run their own thing. That's awesome. So if you're wanting some education, definitely check into that. So, Jim, when I wanted to reach out to you because – I had several questions, and with your life experience, it just you, you seemed like the guy to, to talk to. For people that we all have dreams and visions for what we want to happen in our life, what are some of the life lessons that you have learned in your own life on how to make one's goals or visions a reality? Well, I always share with my audiences that I write books for or read my column or see the movies or sit in the arena events I do, uh, you know, I believe we all have one right, and that's the right to choose. We're one quality decision away from anything we want, and we change our life when we change our mind. Everything that happens in this world happens when we change our mind. And everything in your business, your personal life, your faith, your fitness, 
your legacy that you'll leave behind is all about changing your mind. And uh, if anyone listening to us now wants to change anything in their life, it starts with you changing your mind. You get a, a, a firm vision of what it is you want to do, and then you apply that to your life, and you carry that out. You get a, But it all starts with that vision of what do you want to do. Right. You know, that's, that's so true. And speaking of that, you have, for people that don't know, what, what year did you lose your sight? I began losing my sight. I was diagnosed as a young man. You know, when I was growing up here in my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma, my only goal in life was to be an All-American football player and then go into the NFL and make my living as a pro. And the coaches and scouts assured me I had the size and speed to do that. So that was the only plan I had for my life. I, I never studied. I never had a plan B. I didn't do anything. And then at age 17, I was finishing high school, getting ready to go to college, in a routine physical to go play another season of football. I was diagnosed with this condition that would cause me to lose my sight. And between that age and 29, my vision slowly faded away. And then for the last 30 years, I've been totally blind. So, you know, it was, uh, I have had the experience of having all my sight, having part of my sight, and then 30 years of having no sight. Okay. Now, through this process, you have written over 30 books, and eight of them have turned into movies. And through this process, you've probably had to overcome limiting beliefs, physical disabilities, to do some really extraordinary and amazing things. In my life, you know, I haven't had any physical disabilities like that, but I have had learning and mental disabilities that I was diagnosed with. And by the grace of God, sometime throughout college, healed me of those to where I could intellectually learn and speak. And I had a lot of limiting beliefs. What, what does a person have to do to overcome such hard obstacles and limiting beliefs in their own life? Well, we all have those, Evan. We're all only as big as the smallest thing it takes to divert us from where we're supposed to be. So whether it's me being blind or you dealing with learning disabilities or someone else listening to us right now who's going through divorce, disability, debt, any challenge in their life, we're all only as big as the smallest thing it takes to divert us from where we're supposed to be. So, you know, we don't always have choices in what happens to us. I hate to be the one to tell you and your audience that uh, life isn't fair. We don't always get what we want or need or earn or deserve, but we will always get what we expect. And for every person that deals with a disability or a setback or a challenge in their life that is defeated by it, I'll show you someone else that dealt with the same issue that used it as a springboard to their success. And, you know, opportunities come disguised as problems. Mm. So for me, losing my sight put me in a little 9 by 12 foot room I thought I'd never leave again, uh, broke and scared and destitute and despondent. But before losing my sight, that had been our TV room. And one, one day out of just sheer boredom, I put on an old movie I had seen so many times, I thought I'll just be able to listen to this and follow along. It worked for a little while, but then I got really frustrated. And I said, you know, somebody ought to do something about that. And that changed my life. That was the beginning of my core business, Narrative Television Network, which makes movies and television accessible to about 13 million blind and visually impaired Americans and millions more around the world. And so my own problem disguised a great opportunity. And uh, you know, the whole world's praying for a great opportunity. The only thing you got to do to have a great idea, Evan, is go through your daily routine, wait for something bad to happen, and ask yourself, how could I have avoided that? And the answer is a great idea. And the only thing you got to do to turn your great idea into a great business is take it one step further. How can I help other people avoid that problem? And the world will give you fame and fortune and resource and anything you ever wanted if you'll care about other people and solve their problem. But so many people, they'll call me. I have 10 million books in print, and my, my contact info is in all of them. So you can imagine I hear from countless people around the world. Right. And everybody, you know, hey, I want to make a lot of money. Well, Evan, the only people that make money 
work at the U.S. Mint. They print dollar bills. The rest of us have to earn money, and the only way you earn money in this life is by creating value in the lives of other people. So the question is, is never how can I get rich or be successful. It's how can I help more people in their lives. Mm. You know, as someone who, who desires to help people, I've recognized that I also struggle in my own thought life. Mm-hmm. And everything that you just described, that looking at your situation as an opportunity, I got to be honest, I'm not there yet. And and that's something that, as you're saying that, I'm, I really got to realize, like, okay, I got to keep this at the forethought of my mind because, you know, the the audience knows my past six months. They They know that we have had a lot of financial... Mm-hmm. emergencies happen one after another. They know that we lost a, uh, a, a pregnancy, right. which was our second loss. You know, they know I, I faced an injury and all these things. And while I'm not going woe is me and I'm looking for, for change and I'm looking for personal growth out of it, it's been hard to look at those for opportunities. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about changing the way you think. So how, how do we go about renewing our mind to the point that we change the way we think and look at our situation? Well, you know, everybody, whether it's you or me or anyone listening to us now that wants to help other people, we struggle with this because we all have those frailties and those problems and challenges. And when I'm on stage, I always tell my audience, please don't miss the power of this message due to the weakness of the messenger. Just because I'm talking about this stuff doesn't mean I've mastered all this stuff. I am a fellow traveler, and we are on the road that will lead us to the mountaintop. But, you know, I don't have to have all the answers to tell people how they can have better things in their life. In fact, I always warn my readers, I don't have any answers. I do have some questions. And when I ask these questions and hold a mirror up to you, you're going to find out that you already got the answers. The answers mm. are inside of you. In fact, you know, don't ever, you know, take advice from anybody that doesn't have what you want. The advice is inside of you. And if it doesn't resonate true with you or your spirit or your mind, um, walk away. Okay. So this podcast is called the whole person podcast and that might sound familiar because of Oral Roberts, the whole person concept, which is again, our alma mater. And I wish, I wish I let the identity or the idea of the whole person sink into me when I was going to college, than letting it sink into me much later. I probably would be further along than I am. However, you know, that, that foundation was put into me And you wrote a book that turned into a movie that was called um, The Ultimate Gift. Yes. And there are multiple lessons in that book. Ironically, a lot of those lessons are in the areas of faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, or fun. And so I just wanted to have you break down some of those gifts, those ideas in the book that you wrote about. So the first one I wanted to ask you about was the gift of work. Why is work a gift? Work is a gift because it's how we take the gifts we've been given by our creator and we share them with the world. That's how we do that, through commerce, through work. Um, That's how we put our mark on the world. And I'm always amazed. I, I wrote The Ultimate Gift. It was my seventh book. And I just released uh, number 45, actually, just the other day. And it's hard for me to imagine. But I never intended to be an author. I was on a speaking tour with Dr. Robert Schuler and Dennis Whaley, and the two of them really encouraged me to write a book. And I wrote my experience of losing my sight and my football career and becoming an Olympic weightlifting champion and building narrative television. And I put it in a book called You Don't Have to Be Blind to See. And then... The publisher came back and said, wow, this is selling well. We need another book. Well, through narrative television, I'd interviewed a lot of movie stars and celebrities. So I did a celebrity book called Success Secrets of Super Achievers and what they know that we don't. And then I did a book uh, with Steve Forbes and uh, your president, Donald Trump, back when he um, 
was in the real world uh, as a real estate promoter and uh, called Great American Success Stories. And then I did a biography called The Way I See the World. And I had, you know, Evan, I was scraping the bottom of the barrel. I'd written everything I knew and a few things I only suspected. So when the publisher said, we want another book, I figured I, I better make up a story. <laughs> and that's how The Ultimate Gift came about. Mm. And as a blind person, I dictate all of my books, uh, my weekly syndicated columns, the screenplays I write, everything to a young lady in an office down the hall here at Narrative Television. And I came in one day and I said, uh, uh, we're going to write a novel. And she said, you know anything about writing a novel? I said, I don't know anything about writing these other books I've written, but we're going to write a novel. And that first day, the only thing I had in my mind was the first line of that book. Uh, it was my 80th year of life on earth and my 53rd year in the practice of the law that I was to undertake an odyssey that would change my existence forever. And Dorothy read that back to me, and I thought, now, who said that and what is he talking about? And over the next five days, what emerged from that dictation between my meetings and phone calls here at Narrative Television is the ultimate gift. And it changed my life and it changed the lives of many millions of people around the world. That book and the sequel books and the three movies so far in that series have grossed well over $100 million. All out of one line and five days here in my office dictating this book. And I, I wrote the book to talk about things I'd learned from my parents and my grandparents and various mentors in my life. But in doing so, I wanted to tell a story that dispelled the big lie. And the big lie here in America is if I just had enough money, I wouldn't have any problems. So I made the main character a billionaire, and late in his life, he realizes he has spoiled his entire family, and he has one grandson he thinks has a little bit of potential. So instead of making him an instant billionaire, he sends him on this 12-month odyssey to begin to understand the gift of work and money and friends and family and all the things you mentioned. And I wanted to start with work because here's this rich, entitled trust fund kid, and I wanted to make him go out and do something that was hard, nasty, hot, miserable work. And one of the years I was in high school, I had to dig post holes for a fence all summer. That's all I did. And here in Oklahoma in August, it is not pretty. And I did that, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have young Jason Stevens out digging post holes. And then that was an important thing. But then at the end of that, he looks down that fence row that goes, oh, as far as his eye can see. And if you watch the movie, it, uh, it, it just disappears over the horizon. And, you know, he, he, he gets this pride of work and all that. And work, it makes us belong. Work makes us feel like we're contributing. And I, it was interested in studying guys that are in prison for a future book. One of the things I found out I had never known before is work in prison is a privilege. If you screw up, you don't get the work. But if you, if you behave yourself in prison, they'll eventually, you'll get to work in the kitchen or the laundry. Now, these are not, you know... Uh, high-profile, fun jobs. And it's not that they're working for the money. It's, it gives you something to do, and it gives you something to contribute, and you get to make a difference. So work is a privilege, and, uh, and uh, unfortunately, about 70% of Americans are disengaged on the job because they don't like what they do. But if you love what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. And... Um, uh, so I would encourage you and everyone listening to us, find your passion and find a way to make a living pursuing it, and you will be a happy, healthy, wealthy person. How, yeah. does, go ahead. how does someone go about doing that, finding their passion and their giftings? They're easy to find. It's just we get in our own way. Um, you know, when we were little kids, we knew exactly what we wanted, and... And we didn't care if it was possible or not. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a physicist. I want to be a marine biologist. I want to be an NFL quarterback. I want to be a ballerina. We, we're willing to do anything. But somewhere between there and here, we got so busy making a living that we forgot to create a life. Well, the biggest dream you and I have is still alive and well deep down inside of us. And 
God would not put a dream inside of you or me that we didn't have the capacity to achieve. So the question is never can we, the question is will we? And it's just a matter of doing what you know. I wrote another book called The Lamp, and uh, we shot a movie on that with Academy Award winner Louis Gossett Jr. And the whole premise is this young couple, um, they're living that life of quiet desperation. They have jobs they hate, they're, they're, they're broke all the time, they have no money and their marriage is going bad because of the financial and work pressure. And then all of a sudden they buy this $3 ugly lamp at a garage sale and this magic genie appears. And he said, I'm here to give you three wishes of anything you ever wanted in your life that you couldn't get on your own. So after a lot of deliberation, they decide we'd like a million dollars, we'd like jobs that we enjoy, and we'd like to have a great marriage. And through this process of deliberation, they get all those things. And then the genie comes back and says, I can't help you with those because the thing was, I'll help you with anything you couldn't get on your own. You can get those anytime you want them. Well, the same thing is true for you and me. Um, the desires of our hearts are there for us anytime we want them. So determining what those are is pretty simple. And I do a little exercise with my audience or with people I counsel with or consult with based on that movie, The Lamp. I'll say, okay, I want you to think of what you would like to do with your life. Money, time, space, contacts, barriers, nothing is an object. You can do anything you want to do, and you have to tell me what it is in the next 10 seconds. Let's do that. All right. All right. So... Evan, if you could do anything you wanted to do in this life. We're writing your obituary right now. Evan stood for this. You can have anything you want, and it doesn't matter what it is. There are no barriers to it. What do you want? you got 10 seconds. So vocationally, I would want to do what you're doing, be a public speaker, author, travel the world, and, and do that. My calling would be living out the heart of God by loving others back to life. Okay. Okay, those two things are not mutually exclusive. If you do A, you achieved B. Right. And if you do B, it'll probably be because you did A. So we're talking about you being a public speaker, an author, a, an influencer here Correct. in the 21st century. I, um, you know, I can speak to this. I, I have, like I said, 45 books out there now, eight movies. I write a column read by uh, three million people in North America, Europe, and Asia every week. I speak to millions of people each year in arena events, and I ain't got nothing you ain't got. I mean, and I, I meet authors out there or speakers who are at the very top of the profession who are not as talented, gifted, or with as legitimate a message as you have. Hmm. So it's not about you. It's about you being willing to declare that in your mind, in your intentions, and start walking it out one day at a time. And that's all there is to it. Interesting. I like that you said declare it in your intention. Yeah. So here's my next question then, because sometimes people have good intentions, but things don't come like they don't they don't act or they're not doing. What would be the next step after having a good intention? Well, you've heard it said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. I mean, and when it's all said and done, we live in a world when uh, there's a lot said and very little done. But once you have those intentions, if you really have the intentions and the intentions have you, they've captured you, you will begin to act. Um, uh, the president of our alma mater, Oral Roberts, always said, God rarely changes anything. God changes people. People change things. I mean, when God comes down and changes things, we call that a miracle. But the, the, the everyday miracles that are all around us are when God changes people and people change things. Mm. And that's the big difference. But, you know, it all starts with your intentions and your belief. We're sitting here in my office at Narrative Television. If one of the young ladies down the hall came in and said, Jim, Evan, you guys need to know the building's on fire right now. I say, okay, I know that. And we continued recording this podcast. They would get very uh, scared and they would come in again and say, hey, guys, the building's on fire. Not kidding. You, you need to get out of here. Oh, no, we understand that. We believe that. And if we sit here and continue to do this podcast, we don't really believe that. 
So when you see people tell you they believe in something or they tell you that's their intention, but you don't see them acting on it, they really don't have it or it really doesn't have them. You've got to get this inside you at a level that very few people ever understand. And if you have a calling on your life, and I'm talking to everybody listening to us now, a dream, a goal, a calling, something you want to do in your life, it's there for a reason, and you're supposed to do something about it today. Not tomorrow, today. Now, it may be read a book, learn more about it, find out who are the 10 most successful people, get in touch with them. Um, you know, it may be making a contact, it may be starting, you know, uh, you know, if you want to write a book, the way to write a, a great book is start out by writing a bad book. <laughs> and one of the blessings that we received for writers like you and me, in the last edition of Ernest Hemingway's Movable Feast, the most recent edition they put out, in the back they reprinted some of his first draft. And that's what intimidates writers like you and me, is that we read our first draft of something and we read everybody else's final work, their published work. And that's the problem. It's really easy to get a bad self-image, bad esteem here in the 21st century because we look on social media and we know how our life's going and we see everybody else's highlight reel of how their life is going. It's not real either, but that's what they put out there. And, you know, and then you read other people's books and you say, I could never write anything like Hemingway. Well, when you read the first draft, Hemingway doesn't write like Hemingway. You think, he's no better than I am. Mm. I could write that. And um, so, you know, it's just a matter of getting started. And I was in a writer's conference one. Mary Higgins Clark, this uh, thriller writer, was there. And there was probably close to 1,000 people came to hear her. And she said, how many of you want to be writers? Stand up. And almost everybody there, almost 1,000 people stood up. And she said, now, those of you who wrote something today remain standing. Everyone else sit down. There were about 40 of us. Probably 900 people sat down. She said, the people you see standing here today, they are writers. The rest of you used to be writers. Maybe you were a writer yesterday or last week. But writers write. Writers write every day. And if you don't get that in your concept of who you are and what you do, you'll never succeed. So, But, but people wait for this inspiration. And this, this is important. I want to yeah. squeeze this in here. Um, a lot of writers, artists, performers, they say, well, I, I, I have writer's block, or I'm not inspired right now. And right now, the, this week is the 500th anniversary of when Michelangelo started his amazing sculpture of David. Mm. that if there was ever a masterpiece, that and his Sistine Chapel are probably it. And, but he said something that day. There were many sculptors working in the studio the same day he was, but they never were doing anything. And they, they always proclaimed, uh, I'm waiting for inspiration. And Michelangelo said, inspiration will find me already working. I'm, I'm, I'm going to work. And if inspiration comes, it'll get here. If it doesn't, I'm here to go to work. And it's, it's just hard work. And anybody ever tells you anything different has never really done it. What you're saying was so convicting that, you know, it's got to find you working. Literally today I was thinking about all the different ideas that I have for books because, you know, every time I get a really cool idea for a title, I just plug it in a file and mm-hmm. kind of store it. And then I'm, you know, I'd go through it occasionally like, man, I have a lot of good ideas. Why am I not writing any of this? And you can call this an excuse or, or whatever you want. But I've been telling myself, like, I just don't feel like the time's right. And maybe that's my Christian knees speaking, like waiting for God's timing, mm-hmm. you know, in my life to be more qualified to to have more knowledge or wisdom or understanding, to, to be more arrived or beneficial to, to an audience. I don't know. But that that's, that's was my thought. And I'm like, okay, well, if it's not the right time, then it doesn't matter what I do. It's not going to be worthwhile. So that was my limiting belief. And you just totally obliterated that. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I wrote a column this morning before you got here. And it dealt with that old story 
about this guy caught in the flood and his neighborhood's flooding and they told him to evacuate and he didn't and the water came up and totally inundated the first floor of his house so he ran upstairs on the second floor and as the water rose above the second floor he crawled out a window and got on his roof and he's standing at the peak of his roof holding on to the chimney and he cries out to God and said God save me shortly after that two rescue workers come by in a rubber raft and he waves them off says no no God's going to save me and then a group of Coast Guard rescue people came by in a motorboat and he waved them off said God will save me finally as the water was approaching him about to sweep him away a helicopter swoops down and they're lowering a ladder down to him and he waved him off and yelled God will save me and as you can no doubt imagine the water swept him away he drowned and as he's approaching St. Peter there at the gates to heaven he asked St. Peter I prayed why didn't you answer my prayer and he said we heard your prayer we we sent a raft a motorboat and a helicopter what are you looking for what do you want and, and that's the same thing you, you have the inspiration you have that file and every author including myself we if we went down the hall I'll show you a file with probably 30 or 40 book titles and ideas. Every writer I've ever seen has those. And, um, and I always, Dr. Robert Schuler, who twisted my arm to write my first book, he, and he got me a publishing deal and endorsed my book, and Dennis Waitley wrote the foreword. But this great man of God said, he said, Jim, I, I've never believed that hell is so much a lake of fire as it is standing before your creator and having him show you his plan for your life and what you could have done had you just simply done it. And I am convinced the greatest books, the greatest music, the greatest masterpieces the world has never experienced because they went to the grave inside of somebody. Mm. And, and if you can live with that... Um, then don't be a writer. But I always tell people, when the fear that whatever's inside you may be a masterpiece gets bigger than your fear of what's inside of you may not be worthwhile, you'll write every day. Wow. And somebody needs to hear it. And, and you know, I've written over a thousand weekly columns read by millions of people. And some of them, when I write them, I think, now that is for the ages. That is meaningful. And some of them, I thought, okay, I, I need another column. There it is, you know. And writing for newspapers, and there are about 200 newspapers and magazines that carry my column each week. But it all started here in Tulsa with a guy named Ralph Schaefer in the Tulsa Business Journal. And he'd read one of my books, I think my first book. And he said, can you write a column? I said, I have no idea what a column is. He said, write 500 to 700 words on anything you think matters and send it to me. So I went in and dictated it, and man... 20 minutes later, I faxed it over to him. That's how long ago it was. I faxed it. It was 20 years ago. And um, he called on the phone. He said, when did you write this? I said, right after you called me. He said, you wrote this in 20 minutes. I said, yes, sir. He said, do that every week. He said, I need it every Thursday morning. So I started, and that was my first paper, and I started as a columnist. Well, I remember one Thursday, I was really struggling with getting something out, and it was approaching noon, and he calls and says, where's your column? And I said, well, I don't have it quite right. And he said, Jim, this is a newspaper. We don't need it perfect. We do need it Thursday. Send it. And, and some of the columns I thought were kind of mediocre or not you know, as inspiring to me have been some of the ones I've gotten hundreds of responses to, and people tell me it changed their lives. And there's times when you're a public speaker, you will walk onto that arena stage. There's times you feel like you're walking on water and you could – take on any any challenge in life other days the plane was late your back hurts you just want to go home you know and all this stuff and everything and the whole key is your audience should never know the difference but it's those days when you go out there and do that that you will have these life-changing responses from people so it's not about you and me it's not about what we think or feel it's are we willing to show up and serve other people and somewhere there's somebody waiting to read what you didn't write today. Hmm. And I don't think you have the right or the ability to, to, to deprive them of that. And 
it's not our job to reach people. It's our job to reach out to people. The Spirit will reach them or it won't. That's not about you and me. Wow, that was so good. Uh, well, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about the gift of money. Money is probably the most misunderstood thing in our society. Um, you know, uh, there are only three things we can do with money. We can spend it on what we need today. We can save and invest it for the future, or we can give it away. And a certain percentage of every dollar that comes into your hand needs to go to all three. People who tell me I'm going to be a giver when I'm rich and have money, no, you're not. No, you're not. I know people that make a million dollars a month, literally, make a million dollars a month, and they don't have enough money to do everything they want. If you're giving out of your surplus, it'll never happen. And recently, my wife and I have had the privilege of giving away a lot. We give away most of our money now. And uh, donating money is the most fun you'll ever have with money. You know, we've, we've been on all the trips and buy the houses and the vehicles and the jets and all that stuff. It's all great. It's all great. But uh, you want to have fun, uh, you know, go to a department store, get a U-Haul truck, buy 100 bicycles, and go to a underprivileged part of your town and give all those bicycles away, and you will have a day you'll never forget. Hmm. And Or when the Bahamas gets hit with the hurricane, you know, call the Navy, say, I need space on your ship. I'm sending 100,000 meals today, you know, just because you can. Or send 500 kids to college or write a check for a million bucks or whatever. And, and, you know, and I want people to understand, you're not talking to a wealthy. I sat in ORU Chapel just like you did. And I remember a sophomore at ORU. It's 40 years ago. I'm 19 years old. 40 years ago, I'm sitting in this chapel, and Oral had this guy come speak who digs water wells in sub-Saharan Africa. And so people have decent drinking water. And the guy was okay. He spoke. And just as we were getting ready to leave, Oral said, I feel that we should take up a collection and help this man. Well, I thought that was a great idea. But, Evan, I had $17 to my name. It was in my pocket. I had a $10 bill of five and two ones. That was everything I had. And so as the basket approached, I'm ready to throw in a, a dollar. I'm going to throw in a dollar. And that was a big sacrifice to me because I had a date with Miss Crystal that night. She's now been my wife for 38 years. But uh, we weren't a couple quite then. And I was already thinking, you know, a $17 date's not going to really win the day here. And so, But I'm ready to throw it in, go down to 16 bucks, And just as the basket's a person or two away from me, Oral said, stop. Man, and the whole world stopped. He said, somebody here needs to hear this. Either give your best and expect the best or keep your money, because you'll need it. And I took my one, I put it back in my pocket, I got out my $10 bill. I threw it in there, and it changed my existence. Right after chapel, I told Crystal, I got good news, I got bad news. The good news is I helped that man with his water wells. The bad news is we're getting ready to have a $7 date. And she said, well, we could eat in the dining room and then go for a walk which was about all the options I had. So we went for a walk across the campus there, and we ended up over in the grad center in an empty classroom. And she said, what do you think we are going to do when we get out of college? Well, there'd never been any, really been a we before. Mm -hmm. So I took that as a very positive sign. And so I got excited. I could still see a little bit, and I could write a little bit. So I jump up, and I start writing on the marker board there, well, what we're going to do is I'm going to start a company, then I'm going to be a millionaire, then I'm going to write a book, then they're going to make a movie. And I wrote down all these things, and every one of them had happened except for one, the last thing I wrote. And then it was a year ago this past spring, and I was in a two-day board meeting at ORU, and Dr. Wilson asked us, what should ORU be doing in the year 2030? So people threw out all these ideas, amazing people are on the ORU board. And one of them that somebody threw out was we should have a school of entrepreneurship and give a four-year degree and a master's degree in entrepreneurship so kids from all over the world can come here and learn how to start a business and go home and create jobs and wealth and things in cities and countries around the world. Well, last summer, I could not get that out of my head. I mean, it was one of those inspirations that I had, but it had me too. So finally... 
I did some research on it and what schools have one and how we would do that. And I wrote up a proposal and I called Dr. Wilson. I said, why don't you come over to the house? I want to talk to you. And he did. And I said, this is my vision for the Stovall Center for Entrepreneurship. And if you like it and the board agrees, I'll give you a million dollars. And he went away for a couple of weeks and ran it by the board and the faculty. Well, they added more ideas to mine. And he came back and said, we want to do it, but it's going to cost a million and a half dollars. So there I am again, 40 years later, either give your best and expect the best or keep your money. So I wrote a check for $1.5 million and it has changed my life. Money is a tool, nothing more or less. It, money makes you more of whatever you are. If you're a generous, giving, creative, loving person, money will help you do more of that. If you're a corrupt, selfish, nasty person, money will help you to hurt more people. Money just makes you more whatever you are. It leverages who you are. Money is, is, is stored work. That's all it is. We work for our money, and then we get some of it. And it, all it is is stored up labor. And, um, and it's, it's, it's grossly misunderstood. Okay. When it comes to friendships, you know, they say if you have one or two good friends in your life, that's a big deal nowadays. Yeah. And I'm lucky to have five amazing yeah. men that, you know, regardless of time or distance or location, I can call upon these men mm -hmm. and they're there. Right. Tell us about the gift of friendship. Well, like you said, it, it is one of the most corrupted words in our society today because Facebook, we friend everybody. I mean... I mean, if I, if I don't hate you or just don't want to ignore you, we, we say we're a friend. But right. I mean, so that is a, you know, we got to define the term. And like you said, if you have five friends in your life, you are blessed. And, uh, you know, I have two guys that I actually went to ORU with. And for the last 30 years, we are in an accountability group. Uh, we spend an hour on the phone every other Sunday night going through our lives and the commitments and the things that we're willing to be accountable for to each other. And these men are friends. We've shared the best of times and the worst of times. And like I said, if you have a handful of those, you're lucky. Now, people always tell me, well, I can't find a friend. It's like anything else. Quit trying to find one. Just start being one. Mm. And then you'll find him. It's not about you. It's about them. And, uh, and so friends are this amazing thing, and you will earn and deserve one as soon as you start being one. What's the gift of learning? Learning is this amazing thing, and in the story, the movie, The Ultimate Gift, in the book, I sent this young billionaire kid to this poor, impoverished area of Ecuador, and he works at this library. And they only have a handful of books, and they're all out all the time. People are reading them. And, you know, they have this thirst, this hunger for learning. And at one point, he makes the statement, these people are so poor, but they don't even know enough to be miserable. They're happy all the time. Well, it's because they're learning, they're engaged. And, uh, you know, we live here in the 21st century, I don't care if you're the most brilliant expert in your field. If you're not continuing to learn five years from now, you're obsolete. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. And, um, you know, when I meet, I have had the privilege of meeting presidents and kings and popes and the most successful people of the 20th and now the 21st century. And we don't talk about, do you read or, or whatever? It's, what are you reading today? What are you reading today? What books do you read today? And it's fascinating. I always ask, that's one of the questions I always ask successful people, what are you reading today? And if you only had one book, what would you recommend it? And it's amazing the things you learn. And I'm embarrassed to tell you and your listeners here on your podcast that as a best-selling author nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, when I could read with my eyes like you do, I don't know that I ever read a whole book cover to cover. But as a blind person through the National Library for the Blind, I was part of an experiment into compressed digital audio and over several years trained myself to read unbelievably fast. So I can listen to an average book 
at seven, maybe 800 words a minute, depending on how technical it is. So I read a book every day. There hasn't been a day in 30 years I haven't read a whole book. I read a whole book this morning. Hmm. And um, How long does that take? Um, two and a half, three hours. Okay. It's like watching TV or a movie every day. And, but that has changed my life. Part of it is just myself getting better. And part of it is if you want to be a writer, you need to start out being a reader. And, uh, mm. and there are a lot of people who want to be authors and speakers, and they've written more books than they've read. And um, you can really tell. But uh, learning is a powerful thing. One of the publishers who put out a number of my books, Charlie Tremendous Jones, uh, his middle name was actually Tremendous. And Charlie Tremendous Jones was the publisher for many years at Executive Books. And he was known for saying, you'll be the same person you are today five years from now except for two things the people you meet and the books you read otherwise you'll be the same as you are now so if you're happy where you are now uh don't meet any more people and don't read any books but if there's something you want to be do or have that's not a part of your existence today read a book and go meet some other people that's awesome so earlier you hinted at it but go in a little bit more depth what's the gift of problems Problems are, as I said, opportunities, wealth, blessings come disguised as problems. And, um, you know, I met a young lady the other day. She'd read one of my books, and she came by to get it signed and get a photo, and we're talking, and she had her little little girl with her. And... I said, what's going on in your life? Well, it's horrible. I've been through this horrible divorce, and he was abusive, and not, nothing came out of that marriage. I just lost five or six years of my life. I said, so you don't care about this little girl here at all? She said, well, no. She's the greatest blessing I, I have had and ever will have in my life. And I said, did, did she come out of your marriage or not? She said, yeah, she did. And I said, well you'll find out other great things that came out of that bad marriage. If nothing else, in your next relationship, you'll know what you don't want. And you will learn from that. Otherwise, you'll just repeat the same thing over and over and over. So once we understand that, that opportunities come disguised as problems, every time something bad happens, we start looking for where's the compensating balance. Or for those of us who went to ORU, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. So th what this has always told me, I can either worry about all things, which <laughs> greatly overextends my brain power, or I can just love the Lord. And uh, I find that to be an easier solution and let him worry about everything else. What's the gift of family? Family is an interesting thing because in the book, uh, Ultimate Gift, I show that uh, you know some people are blessed with a great family by birth and others the only bond is love and you know it is a trying thing we can pick our friends we can't pick our family but there are other people that um, become as close as a brother or sister or a parent to us and family are the people that um, no matter what happens, when you come home, they have to take you in. I mean, family are the people we live and die with. And they, you know, once a year I go to my family reunion for a couple of days up in Missouri, and I get together. And some of these people are great friends of mine. If we weren't family, we would be friends. Others of them, not so much, but they are a product of where I came from and where I'm going, and it's wonderful to stay connected with those people. So family is that kind of a of a perspective and a blessing all at the same time. What if someone doesn't like their family or where they came from? Well, I would say go find some other meaningful people in your life and, uh, and get them around you. And, you know, we all get to, to make those decisions. I mean, you have these five guys you mentioned to me mm -hmm. earlier. They couldn't be any closer to you if they were blood brothers. Correct. There's no way they could be any closer to you than they are. Well, we all have the privilege of going to find those people. And uh, I, I am pleased and blessed my mother and father are alive and well, and I talk to them every morning and see them once a week. 
and they are 87 and 88. And, um, you know, but I have other people in my life, mentors and people, I would say they're like my mother and father. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just uh, so like in most spiritual principles, if you don't have that in your life, you have not because you ask not. Mm. What's the gift of dreams? Uh, dreams are the, you know, it's how we tap into God's gift for our life. Dreams get us beyond the here and now. You know, I remember when I lost my sight. And sight is a precious gift, Evan. I hope everyone listening to us now, as the fall leaves change or as the first snow comes or the holiday lights or whatever, I hope you'll take an extra moment to look at those and uh, remember that uh, some of us can't. And I hope you'll really enjoy all those things. And sight is one of the most precious gifts I ever had but it pales in comparison to vision. Sight tells us where we are and what's around us. Vision tells us who we could be and what's possible. And once we get that concept in our life, um, we become who we're supposed to become. And those dreams are the ability to be that. That whole question, if I could do anything I wanted to do, if I could be, do, or have my future, my destiny, what would it look like? That's where dreams come from. What's the gift of laughter? Laughter is what makes life fun. There are times you either laugh or you cry about it. And um, I tell a story, usually when I'm on stage, about being backstage at an arena event and running into a deaf guy. And I, I won't bore you and your audience <laughs> with it now. If you want to go online to jimstovall.com or just Google Jim Stovall and deaf guy. And it's me and this deaf guy meet and try to have a conversation. And don't get anywhere. And, you know, it's sad. I mean, here's a blind guy and a deaf guy. And, uh, but you either laugh about it or you cry about it. And uh, it's always better to laughter. Laughter is great medicine, and the world is sorely in need of a little more medicine. So I have three questions that I, I like to wrap up every interview with. And, you know, as, as someone who likes to learn from other people, Sometimes I feel when I listen to people that I, they're so far advanced and so far above me that, that I have a hard time relating. And your stories and your concepts are extremely relatable. What's the biggest lie in self-talk that you currently have or have struggled with in the past? Um, that I have to be my message. Now, I do have to strive to be my message, and it has to, it has to be something I own. But... I don't have to master everything to teach it. Mm. I just have to go out and I'm in the message business. And when I remember that, I have a good life. And I'm not the only messenger out there, neither are you. So I'm only responsible for my message. So I've just got to get it. I don't have to solve all the problems in the world. I just got to show up on the day and write or speak or make a movie that uh, solves some of those problems. What brings you peace? Being in my place, in the will of God, in my calling, my whatever. It's like putting my foot in my shoe. It just works. I remember that day, and I'll be brief. Um, you know, they told me I'm going to be blind, and I can't play football again, and I come back to my hometown here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was mad at God, and I told God, if you have a place for me and if there's something I can do, I need to know it today or I'm done. If you can imagine the audacity of this kid, uh, I put God on a on a clock. I said, "You got till midnight," and then, as happens every fall here, the Tulsa State Fair comes. Well, I've been playing football so many years, I hadn't gone, so I decided, okay, uh, I can still see to get around on my own, and uh, I'll go to the fair. And I reminded God, "Okay, you got till midnight. I'm going to the fair," and I went into that big building there, the IPE building, right behind the Golden Driller, and I remember they had an exhibit or exhibition from the previous Olympic Games. And to be honest with you and your audience, they, they had the gymnasts. The girls were over there. I could still see, so I figured I'm going to go look at these Right. Girls. They're better looking. Yes, very much so. And after uh, they were there and did their thing for a while, the weightlifters came out. And I thought, that's something a guy could do even if he was going blind. And... Three years later, I was an Olympic weightlifting champion, and I made our national team. And right behind you on the shelf over there is a gold medal that uh, 
a lot of people don't get. And I got in it. In the Olympics? Y- yes. Wow. And I got it because um, I couldn't do what I thought I wanted to do. Well, I left the IP building, and I was thinking about those weightlifters, and I was reminding God, you got a, a little time to come up with something here for me. And there was a big banner on in the... Uh, the pavilion, the arena there, and it said free concert. I had no idea who was playing or when it started, but I went in and I sat down on the front row. There was nobody else there. So I just sat there and I prayed a little and I reminded God, you're coming up on about six, seven hours here before I got to know what I'm doing in my life. And I thought about those weightlifters and I was so intent on my thoughts and prayers, Evan, I wasn't aware that the arena had filled up around me. And then a voice I will never forget said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Tulsa State Fair, the one, the only, the legend, Ray Charles. And they brought out the most famous blind man of my generation. And he sat down at the piano about 10 feet away from me, and Ray was magic. And I said, okay, God, I get it. A blind guy can do something. Ray's kind of got this music thing covered, so I better go do something else. And um, that was a turning point in my life. Ten years later... I'm now a successful business person, self-made millionaire. I'm speaking at Madison Square Garden in New York for this promoter. He said, man, that was awesome. I want to hold you over. I got another group, 17,000 international business people next week. Will you come back and speak? And I said, sure. And he said, "Um, do you want to go back to Oklahoma? You want to stay here in town all week? Well, I had some TV business to do. I said, I'll stay in town. And... He said, well, since you're going to be here, I've got another act coming in. And I was thinking of a way to tell this man who's paying me more money than anybody should ever earn for doing something they love um, that I'm not comfortable getting out in public as a blind person. But just to be polite, I said, who do you have coming in town? He said, tomorrow night opening Carnegie Hall, Ray Charles. I said, yeah, I'll go. And he said, you okay sit on the front row? I said, oh, yeah, I've done that before with Ray. And afterwards, I went backstage and... He was signing some books. I didn't know blind people could write, and I told him so. And He showed me how to write my name. I, 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 they tell me I've signed 100,000 books now. I don't know if that's true or not, but there were several years. All I knew how to write was Ray Charles and Jim Stovall. That's all I knew how to write because he showed me how to write those things. And we became friends until he died, and it was a powerful, powerful friendship for me just to see somebody else that took this bad thing and got it out of their life. In fact, the last time I ever saw him, he was here in town at our performing arts center playing with the Philharmonic. He did two concerts after that and passed away. Hmm. And I said, Ray, what do you want people to remember you by? He said, I hope they remember I put on a decent show and put out some good tunes. But he said, when I die, I just don't want the fact that I was blind to be in the first line of my obituary. Well, when Kelly, the young lady down the hall, came in said, Jim, I'm sorry, we just heard Ray died. I said, get me the old bit from USA Today, New York Times, Washington Post. She printed them all out and brought them in. And they said, you know, Ray Charles was a genius. He was an icon. He was a cultural pivot point for a generation of people. And, when, and way down there in the third paragraph, he said it was, he was blind. But, uh, you know, and that's kind of what I want to do, you know. I mean, you know, and uh, occasionally I'll, like, Wikipedia myself and see what they say about me. And, you you know, Jim Stovall's a best-selling author and producer of eight movies and does this and this. Right. And, and way down there somewhere it says he's an advocate for the blind and um, he is blind himself. So, uh, you know, never be – whether it's – divorce or debt or disability or bankruptcy or anything else you deal with, don't be identified by your problem. Don't be the divorced guy or the bankrupt woman or the blind guy. Hmm. Don't be identified by your problems. That's good. What's the best decision you've ever made? Hopefully I haven't made it yet, but... um, (laughs) As of now, in your life, what's the best decision? I have a poster at home in my office there at the house, and it's a foot wide and four or five feet long. And at the top it says success is, and then it has dozens of things listed there. 
But number one is marry the right person. Because I'm going to tell you, you don't get that right, <clears throat> you better go back and clean that up because uh, nothing else happens if you're going through life with the wrong person. And uh, Crystal has always been my number one fan, my number one cheerleader. Uh, she always believed in me when there was no logical reason anybody would ever believe it. I mean, a lot of people buy into the Jim Stovall story now. Right. But uh, back then, it was her and me. And I didn't have enough money when we got married to start a business. So uh, we slept on the floor in my office for over a year because hmm. I couldn't afford an apartment. And people just thought we got to work early. And I've never even talked about that till, since, until maybe the last year or two because that was... I mean, she bought into the whole thing, look, hook, line, and sinker, and um, yeah, that's the best decision I ever made. And so, I, I hope it's one of her best, right. I don't know, but, but it's mine. So I, I have one last quick follow-up question based off of what you said, because 50% of marriages end in divorce, and so that means 50% of our listeners that are married might not feel like they've made the best choice, and I don't want to just leave that there. If if they're struggling in their marriage, what is something that they can do to create a pivot point so that it starts becoming one of the best decisions? I have a principle I use in my business, in all my investments and everything I do, called accelerating your point of failure. The only thing worse than failing today is failing two years from now. And, okay, I'm going to step on some people's spiritual toes here. Forgive me, hear my heart, not my words. We all walked down an aisle one time and said, I do till death do us part. And you, as you recounted, that's not a reality for half the people in the world now. All I am going to say to you is, Crystal and I, many, many years ago, we kind of set that aside and we came up with something that works for us. And I'm not trying to sell anybody on it. If it works for you, do it. If it doesn't, find something that does. But uh, I don't want her to be with me because 38 years ago she said, well, I promise till death do I part, I'm staying. Now, there's days that's what you hold on to. But for the most part, I told her, we wake up every morning. And I want us both to be able to say, if I wasn't married to you right now, I'd marry you again today. And if there's ever a day we don't feel like that, we have to talk about it. And... We set a date. We're going to fix this by that date. And if there's some reason that's a real reason it doesn't get fixed by that date, we'll extend the date. But if it's just that we don't know how to fix this, we either fix it or um, we're not going to stay trapped in a marriage because of that. And, you know, we have a rule I call the sunset rule. And... If she does something wrong to me or I do something wrong to her, we talk about it that day or after the sun goes down, man, I get a reprieve. If it wasn't important enough to talk about today, we're not going to talk about it. And the scripture says, don't let the sun set on your anger. And it's kind of that thing. If I do something wrong, you got to decide, is this important enough to deal with or am I going to let it go, one or the other? And with those kind of things, I think you can. And um, I'm sorry. If you don't have a good marriage, find out why not and fix it or go find a better one. Because if, if this person you're married to is not right for you, you're not right for them either. I mean, if they're not your higher calling, you're not theirs. And this myth of we're staying together for the kids, kids are smarter than that. So all I want to say is fix it or move on, one or the other. Hmm. You have a book that's getting ready to come out, or it did come out, and I wanted to plug I believe it it was 100 Worst Employees. Yeah, That's correct. Tell us about that. I came out with a book four or five years ago I did with Express Personnel, the largest employment agency in the world, called 100 Worst Bosses. And we had a lot of fun with that. So the publishers came back and said, can you write something about employees? And the subtitle is Learning from the Worst, How to Be Your Very Best. You know, Evan, if we see somebody that does a great podcast, they're the best podcaster in the world, whoever that would be. Um, their, their excellence may be so subtle, it's hard for you and I to pick up, what are they doing that is so amazing? Because genius always seems simple. They make it look simple. They make it look easy. But when we see someone that's the worst, man, it's really clear what not to do. 
So in Worst Employees, we learn how to learn from people that don't do well, how you and I can do our best. And a lot of people listening to us now that, well, I don't have my dream job. I'm in an entry-level thing. I hate my work. Please always remember the way we do anything is the way we're going to do everything. Mm. You can't halfway do one thing and tell me you're going to go be excellent in some other area in your life. Whatsoever thy, thy hand findeth to do, do with all, thy, with all thy might. Either go first class or stay at home and uh, give your best. You know, and there are people listening to us right now. They have jobs. You know, they, they're honest, honorable people. They wouldn't steal an ink pen from their employer, but they'll horse around and loaf three hours a day and not do anything. And that cost, I mean, you could steal a vehicle a year from your employer, and they'd be better off than you stealing three or four hours a day. And give your best and expect the best or go find something else to do. Jim, thank you so much for your time today. That was a wealth of amazing information. And, you know, I'm looking forward to going back and just listening to this over and over. Thank you so much. Well, it's a privilege, and I look forward to our next time together. Thank you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you would, I'd greatly appreciate you subscribing as well as rating and even leaving us an objective review. It helps us with our ratings and spreading the message of the Whole Person Podcast. And now, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Thank you guys so much for listening today. Take care and God bless.